this is Tiffany Aurora. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. All right, so I am excited to welcome Jeremy Moore to the show today. Jeremy is the executive pastry chef at the Hyatt Regency Lake Tahoe Resort Spa and Casino. He previously worked as the executive pastry chef at the Fairmont Hotel in D.C. He went to culinary school at Le Cordon Bleu Paris, and he's also an avid hiker. He hiked the entire Appalachian Trail back in 2018. Um, in fact, in some circles, he's known by his moniker, the hiking pastry chef. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wanted to have you on the show because you're a chef, uh, an executive pastry chef, and the culinary arts are, in my opinion, a beautiful um, display of artistic ability and creativity, and you do it so well. I've, I've also had the I've had the good pleasure of ha knowing you for a very long time, and I've had a chance to see your work um, and also taste test your work, which is kind of fun. I can't say that about too many artists that I know. I also love what you do because you get a chance to make people so incredibly happy every single day because you make pastries and desserts and breads and you may do other things as well. Um, and I just think that that is really cool that you get to interact with your customers every single day. And so I'm wondering, um, I have a number of questions for you, but to start, I'm wondering if you could take us back to the year 2010. Um, you had been working in restaurants for a while at that point in time, and you decided that you were going to go to culinary school. And not just any culinary school, but Le Cordon Bleu Paris, which is very, very well known and very prestigious. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us what made you decide to go to culinary school? Because not everyone um, in in the restaurant world decides to go to culinary school. So what was it that prompted you to go to culinary school? And then what made you decide on Le Cordon Bleu Paris specifically? I had been working in restaurants for over six years and primarily working with cuisine. I was doing the hotline, but I did get a little dabble of desserts and pastries and bread at a couple of the restaurants that I'd worked at, especially towards the end of that. And I wanted, I kept looking down to the other side of the kitchen, which this may seem a menial thing, but they had air conditioning. <laughs> and it's cool, uh -oh. like the hot line where you're, you're sweating at 100, 110, 120 degrees and going, I would like to be down there. A little bit of it and thinking about, okay, I want to expand desserts. In Michigan, there's not a lot of a street culture outside of a donut shop. There's a lot of places that just donuts and I wanted to do something more. And in my career to that point, I had a couple of chefs that tended to have the mindset of, you don't need to go, go to culinary school, or they'd rather hire someone that didn't go to culinary school because it allowed them to mold them a little more often. But they always did say, hey, the couple people that we've met that have gone to Le Cordon Bleu overseas, as opposed to what schools are called, in the U.S. while they were here, Le Cordon Bleu in Paris was always highly recognized. And when I looked into it, it allowed a lot of opportunities to learn things that you would not be able to find traditionally in the United States. Sugar sculpting, 
chocolate sculpting, along with a variety of very classic French desserts learned properly in France, as opposed to a school here in you know the Midwest or somewhere in the U.S. that considers itself French, but in all reality, a lot of the recipes are so far construed. They may have been French at one point, but they, they have been Americanized to a point where it no longer is the same dessert or using the same technique. So I decided that going overseas would have been the best bet. And thinking about it, it was either Le Cordon Bleu London or Le Cordon Bleu Paris. Le Cordon Bleu London specialized in American-style wedding cakes versus France, where it specialized in chocolate sculpting and sugar sculpting. So I decided to go to Paris, because why not? You're going to go overseas for a year and learn pastry, you might as well go to France. So I'm curious what advice you would maybe give to someone who is younger. Um, let's say they're like high school, college age, just deciding what they want to do. But maybe they're thinking about becoming a chef or getting into the restaurant world. And I'm wondering what you would suggest to them to consider if they're thinking about going to culinary school. Because you talked about like some some chefs actually don't prefer that and some people do. So any additional advice you would give to someone who is younger, who is trying to decide whether or not culinary school is for them? Get a job. Uh, the, the best would, <laughs> yeah. is, would be to go into a chef, you know, go into a restaurant, go into a hotel that you, you like. Even if they're not hiring, they're not posting a sign that says they're hiring and ask for the chef, sit down with them and say, this is something I'm considering. And every one of us that gets those opportunities for those people to come in, we're always happy to sit down and, and take some time one-on-one and, and talk about different options and, and different philosophies on culinary schools and either decide, are you going to do this? If so, is there other options? Is it something where you're just going to culinary school, you know, a small culinary school or even a culinary school online where you're just learning a few techniques and then you get in and actually work uh, so you're just doing cross-training both ways. Or do you do some larger school like Le Cordon Bleu Paris? There's also Culinary Institute of America's quite large, the CIA. Whether that is worth a four-year education, it depends on where you would like to go. If you want to own your own restaurant, having that those additional classes for business would be a great thing to learn. Versus if you all you want to do is cook, then probably culinary school is not going to be financially worth it to spend money on it when you can just jump in and find some chefs that you like, find some restaurants that you like, and then get a job and work. Even just the prompt of just go, like go to a restaurant that you're interested in, or just go sit down and have a conversation with the chef. Because I do think sometimes we just tend to like shoot off those emails, right? And if somebody doesn't respond, we think, oh, they're just not going to respond, but like get up and go in person. That's that's the way to actually connect with somebody. It is the best way, unless there's a job posting somewhere that you can get your resume in and and kind of say the same thing and you know cover letter and looking to learn. Unless you go to a high school that has an internship program, which an Incline Village, where my hotel is located, do have our local high school has a small culinary program that we recently taken on. Uh, so we have once a week, we have students come in for two hours a day and they learn pastry and desserts and all that from us directly. And that way, by the end of their program and when they graduate high school, they have a better understanding of 
that's the route they want to go down or if they just want to work it in a job like that while they're going to high school or college. Fast forwarding from the year 2010 when you went to culinary school, um, fast forwarding to 2016 when you become the executive pastry chef at the Fairbot in uh, Washington, D.C. What what sort of made up that gap for you between um, 2010 and 2016. So basically, I'm curious, like, what were the additional experiences that you needed to gain to go from, like, once you had the culinary degree to get to the position of executive pastry chef? What did that look like? Practical work. It's the practical every day's mundane. Uh, when I started, when I came out of culinary school, I started at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. as the early morning breakfast pastry cook. I was there at 4.30 in the morning, there are all kinds of breakfast pastries and croissants, which is always the position in a hotel that seems the least useful. You seem like you don't have, you're not using your skills to the full potential, but in reality, it is the best position to learn time management, to learn all the different areas of the hotel because you're supplying different restaurants and banquets and you're learning a lot more as opposed to a normal pastry cook that's just doing desserts for banquets, just doing desserts for one restaurant or multiple restaurants, you get the largest variety of experience. And then later down the road, you start working your way up, which involves more and more paperwork and meetings, just like a normal company. <laughs> you have to be a pen every week. You, you also have a lot of pay, paperwork, especially when it involves billing, working on ordering, and then later on, it's the management skills, learning how to emotionally support your team as well as do your job, which when it comes to an executive pastry chef, our job, most people think our job is to work on the desserts. When in reality, the majority of our job is to support our team. I have a, I have a large team and my job is to support the team and a little bit of create the new desserts, which is the fun part. I, I really appreciate how you phrase that though, because I mean I think that's true of that's true of leadership in general. Not everybody views it that way, but that that that's your role. Your role is to support your team and help your team become the best that they can be. Exactly. It is it's much easier to do our job to feel, feed thousands of people a day with more than just yourself. It is going to be difficult to do everything yeah. yourself. And you're never gonna be able to get to the place where you're producing great dessert without building your team up, without taking the time to develop them, whether that's in the practical skills or getting into that relationship management aspect of, you can't just yell at somebody in the kitchen. The days of that are long gone. The old fashioned yelling and screaming in the kitchen have, have long gone away, which is good. Now much more calm. We're gonna work things out, sit down. More, more of a, like a coaching approach, essentially. Yes, much more of a coaching approach, coaching and develop. So this is a little bit of a random question, but I feel like you and I have talked about this once before. So I'm going to throw this on the table and you can punt it or answer it depending on what, what you prefer. But I know there was a time in your career, and I, I don't remember exactly when this was, but there was a time in your career when you made a lot of wedding cakes. I, I think you had mixed feelings about these. I, I feel like most people who make wedding cakes have mixed feelings about them. If for no other reason than like weddings are just... Like they're just contained chaos. At least that's my perspective sometimes. 
Um, I'm so I'm I'm curious if you have um any any like a funny story to share about a wedding that you would want to share. And but I'm also curious if there's um any suggestions that you would give to a couple who is planning their wedding. They're trying to decide about a wedding cake or what to make about like what kind of dessert to select for their for their wedding. Any suggestions that you think they should take into account as they're making that decision? I have made a lot of wedding cakes. Probably in the thousands of wedding cakes. Oh my goodness. I definitely had periods of time both at several properties, pretty much my last three properties where we've made hundreds of wedding cakes a year. The best advice that I have for couples is don't be afraid to do some research online, look for some ideas. And then most hotels, most pastry chefs or places that you're going to go into with a wedding cake they'll have a portfolio. That's the best way to judge. Just like an artist, if you want to get a tattoo, you want to find an artist that does the style that you like. Most wedding cakes are going to taste good. Or by that, and you've had so much to drink, they're going to taste good regardless. Uh, the best thing is find an artist, find a pastry chef that works with the style of cake that you like. If you're going to a place like a hotel, come to Hyatt Lake Tahoe, and you come to our property, you have a wedding, you're going to get the wedding cake through us. Uh, but even then you have options, whether you want the wedding cake through me, or we have a couple different outside pastry chefs that we work with that create cakes that have more expertise in different styles than I do. That way we can give the best experience and have that best looking wedding cake. The wedding cakes, some chefs are really good at wedding cakes and that's all they love to do. I have had cooks before or people come to apply for a job and they have a huge stock of cake pictures and that's what they like. And every hotel is slightly different. At my property, I'd rather have you have expertise in plating desserts and banquet production or breakfast just because a lot of our clientele that come through would rather may have different styles are looking for something a little different than what I traditionally do. A lot of those wedding cakes we end up outsourcing. But at other hotels, almost entirely, they were coming from us. So it depends on where you go, and it's best to even ask in an interview, hey, I, I would like to learn wedding cakes. Or you can be one of the people who are like, yeah, I'll do it because I need to, but I'd rather do other other desserts. Oh, you meant, So you mentioned plating desserts, actually. So I, I'm wondering if you could speak a, a little bit to, well, I guess to me, but maybe to listeners who are in a position like me who... um can get away we can get along in the kitchen you know like I, I can hold my own okay not next not in, the, in comparison to you but in comparison to you know kind of the average person who's never had um any sort of training I'm okay but I will say this I am terrible at plating things so I I love like the artistry of food and the way that something looks on a plate and this is something that you do so incredibly well I mean you can just make literally any plate look like a work of art I had an experience recently where I had made a dish and it tasted it tasted really good. But then I I was looking at the picture. I didn't have instructions or anything, but I was like trying to copy the picture the way that I plated it. The picture looked beautiful. And then I looked down at the plate when I was done and it looked like a toddler had literally just like taken these spoonfuls and just went. <laughs> it was a disaster. I'm wondering if you have any like super basic foundational suggestions for those of us who are just home chefs um, about 
little things to do whenever you're plating something just to make it look a little bit nicer. Less is more. That is often the case. Less is okay. more on a plate. But it's also thinking about not just the flavoring. You get the flavors to combine. You know, Okay, chocolate works with peanut butter, or this works with that, or you know, vanilla and cherry. It's also thinking about textures and colors and breaking down each component. Sometimes we use little tricks, especially if it comes to pastries, where often you make something at home and you're trying to get it quite right. But in reality, what we did to make it look nice is we put it in the freezer, froze it properly, and able to cut it and mold it to look just perfect versus, you know, if you make a cheesecake at home and you let it cool down and you're trying to cut it, it's never going to quite look the same way as walking into a restaurant getting a super clean cut. And that can only be obtained by putting it in the freezer, at least for a period of time to get it frozen enough to be able to cut it, and then you pull it back out. And there's a lot of trial and error. It's practice. It's looking at other artists, and it's quite often we sit down at a computer and we Google Google pictures, and we print them out, and we're like, okay, be like this component, this component, this component. So we're going to add a few things together and play around with it and see if it works right. And once we get it to a point that it works, we'll take a picture of it, and then we'll use that as our base guide. Yeah, so definitely thinking about... so. But but also paying attention to the like the colors and the textures and everything you said. That's that's a part of it. And in addition to less is more. A dish that is more interesting will always have different textures. You don't want to eat something that's wishy, but you'll eat a bread pudding that maybe is a little of that if there is additional things to hold it up, to have some texture, some crunch. Just like if you have a pulled pork sandwich, what do you put on a pulled pork sandwich a lot of the time? Coleslaw something that has a little bit more texture to it. It gives additional flavor, but also gives you some crunch. So it's not just a mushy sandwich that you're biting into. So uh, along the same lines, sticking with the home chef questions, what would you say is one of the most underrated tools in a kitchen for people that are just cooking at home? Like something that maybe is worth investing a little bit more money, like get something that's really good here if you're cooking on a regular basis. If you're talking cuisine, a decent knife or even a mandolin. A mandolin is quite nice. If you're talking pastry, a good mixer. It doesn't even have to be a stand mixer, just a good quality hand mixer. If you're wanting to make you know, whipped cream and mousses or even cakes, you can use a hand mixer for If you're doing bread, then most likely a good quality mixer that will hold up to the abuse. Most stand mixers will say, Oh, we can make bread in it. But in reality, you put bread in, it starts whirling and getting really hot. In that case, go find a mixer that says professional on it, something that we probably will be using in our kitchens, or you can go for an actual brand that just makes commercial equipment but happens to make it slightly smaller. For home use, such as Hobart or Globe, they both make very large commercial mixers that we use that can hold 20, 30, 80 gallons worth of mix, but they also make the you know, the seven quart or the five quart that you can find at a store. They last a very long time. The current mixer that we're using, current large mixer that we're trying to replace is over 40 years old. It's been around. Kind of wish they could tell stories. <laughs> 40 years of stories from a kitchen. That, that, sounds like, that sounds like a book title. That sounds like it would be kind of interesting. Yes. 
going back to your sort of career trajectory, if you will, in 2018, you quit your job to go hike the Appalachian Trail and you hiked the entire thing, which is absolutely incredible. You are, I think, the only person I've ever known that has hiked the entire thing. I've known people who have hiked portions of it. But um, can you tell us just a little bit about that experience? Like, what was it that prompted you to want to hike the entire Appalachian Trail? And and what was it like on kind of a day-to-day basis? I went down a rabbit hole in research of what I like to do. Prior to 2018, when I was at the Fairmont, I was at a hotel and resort in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is just outside of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I would go to the Shenandoah National Park and hike quite often. And I never really thought of hiking the Appalachian Trail until one summer when I'd gotten back from a hike that I was doing myself and driving in the park and I see a hitchhiker. So I pick him up and we get to talking and he asked me to take him outside the town and drop him back off because he had gotten off the trail. And he was talking about, oh, I started in Georgia. That is a long way away from Northern Virginia. Started the thought process of this might actually be a fun thing to do. And then I was just at a point in my life where I felt like I could take a break from work for a little bit and go do something and jump right back into it. If you wait too long, then it, I feel it's harder to, you're not restarting a career, but you're kind of going back, back and people will question it versus when you're younger, both people leave work and professions and then come back a lot more often, especially in the hospitality industry. We have people coming and going all the time, so it's not as... It's not as uncommon. And then the experience itself was great. For the most part, there are some downtimes. Hiking wet for 11 days in a row and rain, it's for a lot of fun. I feel for some of the military men and women who have that on a regular basis. And so I'm fortunate that it was my choice to get out and go. And and it's my choice if I want to take a day off and go into town and warm up and dry up. Uh, versus other people that don't have that opportunity or choice. And then it's a lot of, there's a lot of work, both your physical work that you think of, but also a lot of mental work, which later on, I think helped me develop even more skills coming back into the hotel and restaurant industry. Were you, were you ever tempted to quit? Oh, yes. I had a day, uh, it was after the 11 days of rain where he had 11 days of rain in a row. And I was in Virginia, getting close to the Shenandoah Park, about 60 miles away. And I remember getting to a road and, and all day I was thinking, I really should just get off the trail for a few days. Otherwise, I'm probably just going to quit. I said, okay, I'll go to the road. If there's cars coming by, I'll hitchhike into town. I'll be fine. There was no cars coming in. So I'm like, okay, I'll go hike up this mountain. And partway up the mountain, I think three or four miles, I ran into some people that I hadn't known and were hiking on and off with. And I remember one of the girls looking at me going, you don't look like you're having fun. I said, you're right. I'm not. And then a little bit later, I got a text from my sister, Courtney, about something. I don't remember what it was. And that was kind of a point. I'm like, okay, I'm turning around, going back to that road. I'm going to get off for a few days, go to a hotel. I ended up renting a car, 
going to see friends I knew, going to movies, getting a massage, just kind of relaxing and recharging. And then I did a little do a skip around where I went up to the Shenandoah height from the beginning from Waynesboro up to Harper's Ferry. And then I swapped back and, and do my little missing section before going back to Harper's Ferry, but it was a good recharge. There are a lot of people who can just power through the whole entire thing, but that was my, no, if I don't get off and, and do a little relaxing, I probably yeah. don't make it. Well, I think, I think that's so important too, for anybody, not just people that are hiking the Appalachian Trail, but that for anyone, any of us who are doing something that is hard at the level that it's pushing us to grow in a new way, like you can't do that forever without a break, <laughs> you know? And, and I think, I think for people who are driven and ambitious, it's it, the people like yourself, it's very common to be like, I'll just push through it, right? Like, I'll just keep going. You had been hiking in the rain for 11 straight days, which kudos to you. I don't, I don't, I think I would have stopped for a break long before you did. But, but yeah, but just like recognizing and, and, and knowing that, hey, it's okay. It's okay to recognize that there are moments where, hey, as you're pushing yourself, you're, you need to stop before you hit the breaking point. And it's okay to say, I need, I need some rest and, and relaxation and like just to recharge essentially. And that's an important thing to carry over into any professional life. You know, great to be able to work and especially in the industry that's known for not particularly paying that well once you're getting started. You're working in as a cook somewhere or even low entry sous chef or a supervisor, probably not making a great amount of money. And a lot of people work multiple jobs. You got a full time and a part time or two full times. And it's important to get out and take those breaks, do those recharge. I feel a lot of people think that it's going to be detrimental to them that they're take a break and they're going to lose some skills. But in reality, it brings more focus when you come back, just like getting back after a nice vacation, you come back recharged and you're ready to get in there and, uh, your growth accelerates. I feel like after a break. Yeah, that's such an important point. And it can feel like in the moment, like, oh, no, I just can't do this. I can't do this. But it will be better for you. If you're if you're in, you really are at the point where you're feeling that burnout, it's 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 going to be better for you. Oh, yeah. And I think that's one nice thing about working in hotels. And I've worked in restaurants for a long time. They don't have the best benefits when it comes to taking time off versus a hotel that offers, you know, the corporate structure. So you have that corporate vacation and corporate PTO, and you're expected to use it. Unlike restaurants where they might give you a week off in a year, but you try to use it, they're going to have you jump through a bunch of hoops to be able to actually get it versus a corporate job or a large hotel that's going to tell you, we don't want you to run and your vacation to expire. We want you to go ahead and use it. Think about taking some time off, booking some trips this year to relax. Seems like it might, it might be a slightly more balanced way to approach life. Yes. Work-life balance yeah. is important. It's hard to do when you're first getting out, but it's still important. I think that sort of segues into this question. Maybe you sort of answered it, but I, I was curious what you would what you would quantify as one of the hardest things about working in um, working in the food and beverage and hospitality industry. What was one of the hardest things about it, and what would you say would also be one of the most rewarding things about it? The stress. 
everyone that comes has an opinion, whether they like something of yours or not. It's kind of like politics where you go out and you, if you try to please everybody, you're not going to please it. You've got to figure out what is your niche, what is your market, what they like, and just focus on them. You're always going to have some people that come through that are from various parts of the world that might not enjoy your cooking as well as other, but as long as you focus on your core group of people, that that's really all that matters. As far as the most rewarding, it's the feedback. Now, a lot of people will tell their servers, you know, thanks, you know, tell the chef, thank you for the meal. It was great. Whoever cooked this meal, tell them, thank you. I'll tell you what I've been, what, 19 years I've been working. I still remember the three times that someone who dined out gave a tip to go for the server to go to the back and said, okay, whoever made this dish, here's a $20, here's a $10 tip. Those are always things that you remember. But as far as working in hotels, we get a lot of groups that come in that give us great feedback, positive feedback, especially weddings. I mean, wedding is a stressful day for the bride and the groom and their party. I would say on our end, it, it's not overly stressful. doesn't mean that it's not important. It's definitely important for us. We're just trying to make sure that the family involved or all the families involved have a, a most relaxing and enjoyable time. They don't have to worry about whether the food is going to be late or whether the food will be great. We take care of all those things in advance of our tastings with you. Make sure that you picked out what you actually enjoy and like and work with you to have a great day. Along those lines, um, so I, I used to run a foodies group here. I live I live in the Baltimore area, and I used to run a foodies group here. It would go around to different like locally owned restaurants. And one of the things that I always try to focus on was like, how how, how do we be good patrons or good customers? Because I to me, the relationship goes both ways, right? Obviously, if you're going to a restaurant, you're paying food, you, you, you hope it's a good experience, right? Like you want the experience of dining to be good, you want the food to be good. Okay. But I also like I wanted to go both ways, right? Like I want the, the people who are working at the restaurants, people who are working, but uh, who are uh, creating the meals to feel the same way. Like I wanted to be a good, a good experience all around. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for groups of people when they go out, like, how can we be the best customers? And this could go two ways. One, like if the experience is really great, like what would be the best way for us to express that? But also maybe more importantly, if the experience isn't so great, what's the best way to acknowledge that, but in a way that is not like detrimental, but in a way that would maybe actually be useful to the restaurant that we're visiting? It really depends on what those areas of opportunity were lacking. And your dining experience, was it the server kept disappearing for quite a while? If that's the case, it's probably best to flag another server or somebody butt down and ask to speak with the manager, have them come over and talk to them and just be honest saying there were a lot of times we didn't see our server or we're looking for them and we couldn't find them and that will help with their performance. But if it's an issue with the kitchen where you're not getting your food correct or you ordered a well-done steak and it comes out rare, then you can talk to the server, additionally ask to talk to the manager, and just be honest about it. You don't have to yell and scream, but just sit there and tell them. And the kinder you are explaining the situation, the better results you're going to get. You know, we're in the hospitality and the service industry. We want to serve others. And that comes with getting both the positive feedback 
and those constructive criticisms to get better. We all have nights that things are slightly off where you're not quite on top of your game and things slip a little and having a manager come back or having a chef come back, let everyone know on the team, both front of the house and the back of the house, where our areas are slipping, we can focus on that goes a long way at helping. As goes to the positive aspect, the best way leave reviews online, reviews are important. If you stay at a hotel and they send you a survey, fill it out. Yeah. Uh, one of my jobs is every morning I sit down and I read every review that people at the hotel have filled out and returned to us. If there's a little box that says respond, you want somebody to respond to com your comments and you check yes, and you have some constructive feedback, more than likely you're going to get a response from somebody. Yeah, be kind to others. Yeah, well, it is. And I, I think um, it is the golden rule. And I, and it's it's so simple. But the thing is, I think sometimes it's the most simple things that we tend to forget. And I I mean, I saw this a lot. It's interesting because I think that the hospitality industry got hit so hard at the, like the beginning of COVID, right? And I, I feel like there was this marked period of time where people were conscientious about that and they were purposefully going out of their way to be kind to people who worked in the hospitality industry. I don't know if you experienced that, but that was my observation as, as someone who is a customer, someone who would go and frequent restaurants. And then, but I feel like that sort of slipped a little bit, you know, as, as everything has been sort of just shifting and people are kind of, I hate the phrase new normal, but essentially like finding a new normal, right? And then um, there have been some changes in the industry in general. To your point, it's perfectly okay and even good to give the feedback if something's not quite what you were looking for, or if something felt just, it just felt off. But do it in a kind way. Do it in a way that's, you know, I'm giving you feedback. I'm reflecting back to my experience so that you know about it. You can learn from it and and you can give the next person an even better experience. Exactly. And be as detailed as you can. The more details you just put, I didn't enjoy the food or I didn't like the food or the food was bad. That's not a lot of details for it. Versus if you tell me, say, this dessert was the creme brulee was too sweet or the steak was too salty or the sauce with this dish was lacking. That's a lot better detail for us to receive, to narrow down and pinpoint what was the problem versus just an open-ended question. And a lot of people will say that. They'll say, you know, the food wasn't to my liking. I didn't like the food. The food wasn't worth the price. I have to go back to those people and ask them for details versus someone who's already provided me details. And as far as treating people with respect, yeah, I did see it an upturn when coming out of COVID and coming out of lockdown, people were making an effort, conscious effort to be very nice. Unfortunately, that's kind of slipped back to where it used to be. And being in the service industry and when you work with our guests and our customers. There's a lot of people in this world who, who are not as kind as others. And those people are the most likely the people who make the impressions, unfortunately. We have a very high turnover in our industry of people who come and go. And a lot of times it's because they're burnt out working with people who are rude or don't respect them. And they're just trying to do their job and provide you know, the best the, the service they can do. And we think we need to all keep that in mind. The the comment about specificity and feedback, I think that's good. Even beyond just um, beyond the 
beyond the feedback you're giving to anyone at, at a restaurant or a hotel that you might be frequenting, I mean, that's just good in general. Ter- um, a good way to look at feedback is you have you need a specificity because the general feedback of I liked something, I didn't. It's not useful. People can't really do anything with it. I know you mentioned that you there, you do a lot of managing, right? So there's a, a lot of um, or managing or leading people in teams and whatnot. But you do still make some of the rest the recipes, right? Like you make the new menus, and um, that's still part of what you do. Where do you go for inspiration? So when you're creating new recipes or a whole new menu, kind of yeah, you've mentioned Google so far, <laughs> and I'm sure that's a big one. Um, but where else? Like, are there other chefs that you look at? Other restaurants? Like, do you go out and take inspiration from nature? Like, I have no idea. What is what does that process look like for a chef? Google. Uh, no, I mean, Google does play a little bit of a play. Sometimes, a lot of the time, it's what are the other restaurants around us serving? Our suppliers are always really good at giving us market feedback. Of Sometimes you're cooking for a price price point, and they're going to tell us what's going up, what's coming down, what's coming into season, you know, our growers and produce, and then looking at ways of pairing that and then thinking about a diverse menu. Everything you have on a menu for desserts is a custard based. It's a little boring. You got you could have a creme brulee, but then you probably don't want to have a panna cotta too. You're gonna give people some options. Have a cake, have various different types of desserts. Same thing goes with cuisine where you're looking at giving a variety of options to people. I can't say that I've ever come up with anything off of off of any of my hikes in nature. I've definitely thought of some dishes while I'm out hiking, but that's because okay. I'm saying all the you know, thinking about flavor combinations, definitely a lot of old cookbooks. Cookbooks we use and pull out and you might make something and go, this isn't what we want, but we like where they were thinking. We like these kind of combinations. And I've always been a fan of, you know, putting in some herbs to dessert, something that you're not, that's not common, whether it's basil or rosemary, things that you might think of as being cuisine oriented. But I think that's partly because I came from that side originally. And there's some of us pastry chefs out there that like herbs. And then there are other pastry chefs that love flowers, a lot of floral tastes, and they go down that route. And other ones that wouldn't touch what we do with a 10-foot pole. I, I know I haven't taste tested probably most of your desserts. That's definitely a stretch because unfortunately we don't live that close to each other. We don't see each other that often anymore. But but I have taste tested uh, many of them and there's never been a single one that I wasn't blown away by. So um, the people that wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, I, I would suggest that maybe they reconsider. <laughs> and we, we have that conversation at work. You know, I have things that I dislike. I don't like anything that looks like it came from a grocery store. So I don't like I'm not a big fan of wedges, anything cut in a wedge, like a cake in a wedge. I'd rather make it and cut it a different shape just to make it look like it doesn't come pre-bought. Because there are a lot of places that have phased out pastry programs, a lot of hotels that are phased out, a lot of restaurants, they just buy the desserts pre-made and then add some different sauces and components to it. I think part of that is a lack of job force, a lack of people going into it. And part of it was, uh, especially in the hotel industry in the 90s, where you had a bunch of executives that said, oh, we can save money by cutting some labor. And a lot of hotels don't have pastry departments anymore. There's still some of us, you know, the higher end hotels will have our pastry department. 
But even when I came to this property, almost everything was pre-made. It was, sauces were pre-made. You wanted to make mousse, came out of a bag, just add some milk, whip it up. I'm glad to say all of that is gone. <laughs> you don't need a picture of yeah. more. Okay, but I am curious. You you mentioned before that you don't like cutting cake into wedges. And so uh, how, how do you cut cake? Rather than make it a round shape, you make it a rectangle. <laughs> Quite often I'll make what we call a sheet pan, which the sheet pans you might find for home cooking are usually about a quarter, maybe a third of the size, the large ones. We have much larger sheet pans. So we'll make something, I'll make it in a sheet, and then I can cut it in different shapes. Or I bake it in a small mold. So I'll have a specialty mold, different shapes. I'll bake it in those and then work on it. Just something that doesn't look like a giant wedge that came out of a grocery <laughs> store pre-made. And that's just my own personal philosophy. I know a lot of chefs that are quite happy doing that, and they'll make round cakes all day long. Okay, um, so one other question that I have for you is about just the process of creating new recipes. I don't know if they're the typical on this or not, but is there like a typical number of times that you might have to like test something out as you're developing a new recipe? And I, the reason I ask this question is because I feel like a lot of us who are quote unquote home chefs, um, we might try something new and we get so excited about it and we try it once and then we're like, oh, it didn't work and we just stop. And I'm wondering, like, what does that look like for a professional? Because I'm going to assume, I mean, maybe maybe you try a new recipe, you create something, and it works perfectly for you the first time. But I'm going to assume that most of the time it doesn't. So I'm wondering what that process looks like for you as a professional so that those of us who are home chefs maybe could have a little more of a realistic expectation about how long it might take us to learn something new. I'm lucky that I've had enough years of experience. It's about 50-50. 50% of the time, it turns out, just because I know... I know the process. I can look at a recipe online and know what's going to work, what's not going to work. But as far as the rest of it, I could get lucky and it could only take one additional time. Sometimes it takes six or seven times of working at it and tweaking, tweaking different things. Sometimes that's for flavor profiles. Sometimes it's looking for texture. Others is because where I work, we are at very high elevation and that changes recipes, especially in baking quite a lot. Anything that uses baking soda, baking powder, yeast is going to have different recipe proportions that you can do as opposed to where you're at, where you're closer to sea level. It's very different. So where can our listeners go uh, online if they want to see examples of some of your work? I have my portfolio online at www.chefjeremymore.com. There's a quite a large variety of different pictures from plated desserts that are restaurant style to banquets, to wedding cakes, to some unique shaped cakes and some crazy decorations that I was able to do, not for any particular wedding, just for wedding shows. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. And we'll, we'll put that URL in the show notes as well. So people can um, click on the link there and yeah, it's, I mean, there's just so much artistry in, in what you make and, uh, Definitely check check out that website. I think you will be our listeners will be astounded at what you you put together. It's it, and and maybe find there is some inspiration as well. I mean, regardless of whether or not they they intend to be a chef, um, some some inspiration for some things they could try out at home. 
Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on uh, on the show. Really appreciate it. And um, good luck to you as you continue to progress. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but we are siblings. So <laughs> I have had the, the very good fortune to actually get to see you progress. And um, it's been it's been a joy. I uh, definitely have a lot of admiration for you and a lot of respect for you. And um, look forward to continuing to see you progress. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Yes, we are siblings, but we're on the other side of the U.S. So fortunately, I can't get you quite as fat with all my on this episode myself. <laughs> it would be probably very bad for me if you lived closer from that aspect. Although I would enjoy it from from all others. So cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you later.